0: All right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. And joining me today is a good friend of mine, a mentor, teacher, Mr. Dewey Freeman. He is the co-founder of the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies. He's the director of the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies and owner of Psychotherapy Private Practice. And after teaching for 24 years at Naropa University, he has decided to move in a more creative direction. Most recently, and in collaboration with Kimberly Beck, he has created the Coming Home Project and Relationship Rewilding Retreats. So he's a licensed psychotherapist, teacher, and consultant, and he has extensive training and experience in gestalt therapy, equine therapy, family therapy, bioenergetics, and counseling with children and adolescents. So he's done a ton of work I could go on about his qualifications and his background, um, but hopefully that gives you a sense of his expertise. Dewey is one of the most profound practitioners that I've had the chance to work with and collaborate with. Uh, He will likely be uh, supporting at some of the upcoming men's weekends that we'll be doing this year, and so this will give you a sense of uh, who he is. In this podcast, we're going to talk quite a bit about Gestalt, what it is, how it relates to the individual, uh, some of the challenges that Dewey has seen within men over the decades. Uh, Dewey is in his early to mid-70s, and so he has been doing this work for a tremendously long time and he gives some insight into some of the challenges that he sees men struggling with within his practice, within the work that he's done over the past few decades, how that has shifted, how it stays the same, uh, and the work that we as men need to do in order to live more fulfilling lives, have more fulfilling, successful relationships. And as in terms of how I would talk about it, how we can lead within our relationships. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, certainly, we just scratched the surface, and Dewey will be back on for part two of our conversation here in the coming months. Uh, so as always, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Don't forget to share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And please leave us a rating and review. It does go a long, long way. So if you've enjoyed some of the conversations on this show, it would mean a lot for me uh, and to me if you could head on over to whatever platform you're on. Uh, and leave a rating and a review, letting me know your thoughts and letting other people know that this show is something valuable. So without any further delay, oh, what well, actually one more delay, <laughs> one more delay. If you are interested in the men's weekend, uh, we have a wait list going on right now and we're going to be announcing a couple uh, weekends here within the next uh, few weeks or, or in a month. So head on over to mantalks.com. And you can check out the men's weekends, there's a webpage for it, and you can put your name on the waitlist. Right now, we have a few hundred men from around the world that are signed up. So if you're wanting to get notified about those weekends specifically, make sure that you are on the waitlist as we have some exciting, exciting stuff happening uh, this year and next year. All right. With that said, please welcome my dear friend and mentor, Mr. Dewey Freeman. All right, Dewey. Welcome to the show, my friend. It's good to have you here.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm incredibly appreciative of your invite.
0: So this has been a long time coming, and uh, you—I mean, you and I have had a number of conversations that I've really, really enjoyed. And I feel like the the wisdom that you have to offer is is vital. I think it's very important. And I think what you what you thank teach, you. what you talk about, and and who you are is. I think I think that a, a lot of people in our in our work talk about embodied. You know, that word gets thrown around a lot—embodiment and to embody something. But yet, there's very few people that I have, you know, come into contact with or been in a relationship with that I feel that I can feel the embodiment of their of their own principles. And you are one of those people. You're one of those rare people I that I come across where I'm like. You're living what you talk about. And that's, there's something that feels nourishing about that. And so I just wanted to put that out there because I oh, feel well, like thank that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I feel like that's important. So with that, with that said, we're going to talk about a number of things today, but we'll start off with the big question, which is tell us a story or two about, <laughs> <laughs> about a defining moment in your life.
1: Sounds great. Uh, first of all, there've been a lot of defining moments. And even before that, I'm incredibly grateful to be here. So thank you. Probably two big things. One is, and I don't remember this specifically, obviously, uh, five months into my mother's pregnancy with me, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Hmm. And uh, upon being born, she was with the way and I was with the way. I did not live with her until I was 18 months old. So the defining piece of that is clearly all the attachment stuff, and that has driven my work in many, many ways. Another piece that has changed because I'm—I'm I'm pretty sure we'll at some point we'll be talking about working with horses throughout this. In 2010, I had a major accident uh, where I busted up my pelvis, and the last thing I remembered when they were loading me on the helicopter was um flight for life was one of the uh, first responders saying, if we don't stop this bleeding, we're going to lose this guy. Hmm. And so the next thing I remember was landing at the Swedish hospital, which is one of the big trauma hospitals around here. So those are two huge parts of my history that has affected everything. With the piece around my birth affecting all of the work around attachment and what I've worked with personally and also with others regarding attachment development. And then the piece of work with the accident, what I can clearly say is had I actually really listened to my horse, that accident would not have happened. And it's changed my horsemanship dramatically since that time, uh, which has changed my therapy dramatically and clearly my life. So those are two biggies. Yeah, I was going to say, I
0: feel like horse riding is always a good metaphor for so many things in life and how you interact with the horse, the relationship with it. I mean, there's there's something so fundamental there that I'm sure that we'll get into. Let's Let's just kind of dive straight into the Conversation around different modalities because I you mentioned attachment. Um, I know that you also uh, do equine therapy and you also work a lot with Gestalt. And so I'm hoping that you know maybe you can just give some insight to the listener who may or may not have heard of a modality like Gestalt. And if you can just sort of def- okay. sort of define or give some parameters around what it actually is, what it's helpful for, and um, yeah, let's just begin there.
1: Great. Gestalt therapy is, one, first, it's one of the oldest therapies in, in our modern therapeutic process, meaning that the origins of gestalt are from the 1800s. The working definition that I do, that I use, is that gestalt is the exploration of our experience in and of relationship while in relationship. That's sort of a mouthful, so the so exploration of our experience, not what we're thinking. Our thought process is part of our experience, but it's not all of our experience. So the exploration of our experience in relationship and of relationship while in relationship. Uh, so this modality, one is a very, a very experienced, experiential uh, somatic based therapy, which if you look at it, all work with horses and is a body process can't ride a horse from being in your head and so is birth. So is attachment. Attachment is, is one of the core somatic processes that we experience in our lives and both from a parental perspective and also from a child's perspective.
0: Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard gestalt therapy talked about it in a number of ways in, I think, you know, it's seeing the whole uh, as more than it's more than a sort of like the sum of the parts, right? Because I think right. that sometimes we, you know, it, within therapeutic modalities, there's parts work, you know, that has become quite pop- popular through something like IFS through internal family systems, but is is gestalt about connecting to ourselves as a whole? Is Is parts work a part of it? I know it's a lot about relationship and and what you're in connection with, but I'm hoping that maybe you can just give some clarification about that.
1: Um, Well, first of all, a lot of those modalities that you just spoke about, IFS, somatic experiencing, arts work, uh, those modalities are all subcategories of Gestalt. They, They all, if you can think about it from the perspective of Gestalt being like an umbrella kind of perspective, And those are different ways that certain kinds of Gestalt principles can be applied. Hmm. Awareness, holism, expression, experience, body are all core entities of the precepts or underlying uh, foundational aspects of Gestalt. Probably the biggest piece that I work with directly is what I would call contact. And contact is defined as that place where our emotional, physical, energetic, and or spiritual boundaries touch another. And the core of relationship and also the core of, quote, wholeness, wholeness is W-H-O-L, has to do with how do we make contact? How do we connect with others? And what do we do to promote that contact? And what do we do to inhibit that contact? It's hmm when we're, when I break this down, it sort of is that simple. Problem is, is it simple, but it's not easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I'm a big, uh, advocate and follower and student of, of Jungian psychology, which talks about individuation and that Mm -hmm. being a pathway to, uh, reclamation of wholeness, right. That the the result of, of Jungian, you know, psychoanalytical practice is to move to a sense of wholeness. But it's interesting because some of the pieces are, are very similar to what Gestalt does. Um, and I think that there are
1: some modalities that are overlapping. But Totally. Can I speak to that? Real, please, yeah, That, sure. that individuation piece? Yeah. First of all, before I go on, I do not think there's only one modality out there that is helpful or works. Just period, end of story. In fact... There are many, many ways, many doors to come in. Um, and certainly Young has put together some amazing stuff. So from that perspective of individuation, a lot of times I talk about sovereignty, in which are pretty much the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. tomato, tomato. And at the same time, from a gestalt perspective, boundaries are where we touch another a lot of, a lot of stuff out there in the, uh, you know, the self-help books, et cetera, et cetera, which again can be very helpful are just talking about boundaries in the way that many times boundaries are spoken about are from the perspective of a wall or a fence. It's like, you to have to set boundaries and that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. And from a Gestalt perspective, where we actually make contact, and it's actually called the contact boundary, is where, where do you end and where does the other person begin? And it's at that place that we, that we actually make contact. To do that, we have to be individuated or in my, the, my world, sovereign. So there's a lot of overlap there. So there, it's like there's, again, if we don't have a level of individuation or sovereignty, we, truly cannot make contact, which contact to me, and I can talk about this a little more if you want, is contact is, is sort of, there, it's the building blocks of everything else. It's at the foundational level of a relationship.
0: Yeah, I think, well, we can probably go into some uh, examples. You know, I want to talk about men's lives and the challenges and the internal conflicts that you see. Happening within the lives of men, and I think that that will bring us uh, to kind of give some some real world examples of what contact looks like. But if, from my understanding, yeah, there's the contact within you know the relationship with with the self and the different various aspects of For us, sure. and then there's contact with other people, um, there, there certainly is a huge emphasis in modern culture right now around boundaries. You know, it's like the hottest buzzword in, you know, it's self-help or person. It's like, one out there. Right. It's, it's like, if I could only set boundaries with, with my girlfriend or my wife, it's like, actually, maybe, but maybe you actually don't even know necessarily how to have boundaries or structure with yourself. Or maybe right. it's that you'd actually don't know how to connect with your partner. Maybe that's it, you know, that there's actually like a lack of intimacy. So anyway, tell me what you see in terms of the state of men and the internal Mm. conflict that you see a lot of men battling.
1: Oh, okay. The three huge things, separation, isolation, and betrayal. Mm. Those are the three biggest things that I see. And... And probably the fourth, of I'm going to add it, is actually just lack of education. And what I mean by that, that that last one is we are taught so little about actually how to be in relationship that we have to sort of go out and try and make it up. And there are various ways to do that and, and various modalities and doors to come into. And a lot of it's trial and error. And I mean, I would have loved to have a mentor when I was young to sit down and go, well, what about this? And what about that? And so just literally the lack of somebody sitting down and offering this guidance, Mm. which um, to me, that's a real big deal in that a lot of the messages that we get are around Being tough, being isolated, being your own man. I mean, all of those kinds of things. What's really interesting is, and I'm going to throw in a piece here, is in some modalities, the thought or the theory is that the self, the self is formed and then we attach or we have, we enter into a relationship. From a Gestalt perspective, the self is actually formed in relationship. And it's a product of, and our self is changing all the time, self. And so if we're isolated, if we're separated, we, we cannot form a self or we really struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where the betrayal piece comes in that I talk about quite a bit and is the betrayal is that nobody's there that we believe are is supposed to be there. And that's where you know, sort of blending a little bit like the archetypal mother of the archetypal father. It's like we have an internal sense of who's supposed to be there. We have mm-hmm. that. And for however many years, we've actually literally been around. So when we end up feeling betrayed, we isolate more, we separate more. And we, you know, there's this inner battle of, should I be vulnerable and open myself up to another man or open myself up to a woman that I'm maybe in love with? Or should I make sure that I isolate and separate so that I don't ever feel betrayed? And in my experience as a therapist and working with men, that's probably the biggest piece that I see that we struggle with.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, you talked about um, that that sense of wholeness is developed in relationship. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because, and then and then you went on to say, that we haven't been taught how to be in relationship, and I couldn't help but, you know, sort of bring the question forward of, well, it seems like we haven't been taught how to be in relationship, not only in an intimate sense, but with other men and with ourselves. Like the trifecta is sort of missing, right. you know. And, and so where, you know, where does one start? <laughs> where does one start? Because we <laughs> now that now that we've opened up Pandora's box,
1: <laughs> it's like
0: here's here's the shit storm. Um, which you know i think a lot of men feel this idea of i feel separate from my purpose from my sense of self esteem i feel separate from the people around me i feel isolated you know from the world or from care um i feel betrayed which i think is a is a big one you know especially men that i've worked with over the years that have not had a father around or have not had a father right. very active or present in their life there's a deep sense of of masculine betrayal that can be present yeah and so what do you see this looking like in a man's life? You know, how, how does it start to manifest this separation, this betrayal, this isolation? How does it start to manifest? What does it look like in his day-to-day life?
1: <laughs> you, you just ask these easy questions. <laughs> um, the piece that comes to mind is the manifestation of betrayal is objectification. And here's what I mean by that. There's a dude in the, late 18, in the late 1800s, named Martin Buber, who spoke about what he called an I-Thou relationship, where in relationship with self and relationship with other. And the I-Thou relationship means that when I'm in relationship with another being, whether it be you, whether it be my partner, whether it be my horses, whether it be the trees that Are surrounding my cabin here is that I get and understand a a sense that you're having an experience just as valid as mine and just as deep as mine. And that the process of relationship has to do with exploring your experience as well as my experience. Um, And no matter what your experience is, and whether you're a friend, whether you're a colleague, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, a child, it's like, War and probably the biggest place I've ever where this sunk in so deeply was I was literally, I was up in the, on the side of a mountain in the, in the forest and a cow elk came through with her baby and she stopped. She was probably 30 feet away from me and she stopped and looked at me and stared at me. And it was like, you have a whole life experience coming down the side of this mountain, having birthed this little calf and you're walking up and you're looking at And it's like, It was sort of like, wow, okay, got it. And so the manifestation of that betrayal has to do with the objectification of the other. Mm. And what's interesting is that when we objectify the other, we also objectify ourselves. And when we objectify ourselves, then there's no connection to ourselves. And relationally, if I objectify you, then I don't give you... Literally, I don't get to know you fully. And at the same time, I don't even give you credit for like who you are, what you've done, what your experiences are, what you may feeling, be feeling right now. And in heterosexual, well, actually not heterosexual relationships, all relationships, if I objectify the other, it stops all contact. It stops all relationship. The What I actually have added to that, is the concept of I, thou, we. And that in a relationship, I'm here right now having my experience. You're there right now having your experience. And there's also something that's going on in the middle. And that's the we. And that even goes back to my horse accident. That morning, it was a very cold spring day My horse was really, I was at a three-day clinic and actually three-day eventing clinic where you do three events. And my horse was really struggling. And instead of stopping and going, hey, what's happening for you? Because he gave me signals. Had I actually listened, we would have done something really different. And instead it was like, oh, we can get through this. Yeah, he'll get through it. And, And, you know, I got on and within a few feet. I don't know what happened because I don't remember exactly, but um, had I had an I-thou relationship with him that morning instead of an I-it, that would not have been one of the big significant events in my life. Mm. Um, So when we objectify the other, we also objectify ourselves. When we do that, we don't get to know who we are, we don't get to know who somebody else is, and we don't get to literally form ourselves.
0: It almost sounds as though it, and I'm gonna just put out some other words to contextualize this and, and sort of bring this into the listeners awareness, I guess you could say in a different way. It almost sounds like when you when you're saying objectification, it almost sounds like that's where we sort of quote unquote dehumanize people, right? Where we justify harsh criticisms, where we justify contemptuousness, resentment, like Is that the realm of of those things where, you know, getting into arguments with our spouse and, and all of a sudden finding ourselves yelling or calling names? And so that's the realm of objectification.
1: Yes. And where we don't see the other being as fully whatever they are. And it's not just objectification of our spouses or our partners or our friends. It's actually objectification of animals. It's objectification of land, of nature, of you name it. And yeah, where we don't connect. So your words were right on. So when
0: we're in that state where we've, so we're, where we've broken contact with, with, let's just say our partner, right? And we have begun dehumanizing them in some fashion, right? We're angry at them. We're pissed off. We're yelling. We're maybe... Harshly criticizing them or, or even maybe going so far as to character attack them, you know, say that they are some way or not. In those moments, our field of awareness of who they are shrinks. Into a kind of one dimensional version of that person, right? You're this way. You never, you always, right? So those types of things begin to happen and we disconnect from the other sort of more vibrant parts of that individual. And I think what you're saying is in those moments, we also disconnect from, as, as you said, we we other ourselves, we objectify ourselves. You bet. We also disconnect from those parts within ourselves. Yes. Okay. So the origins of this behavior are i think from what i'm getting is in what you're saying is is from our our origins in attachment so like our learned behavior of how we began to attach to parents family members how other people treated us like how does attachment fit into this
1: when we're objectifying another actually one way to break that cycle is instead of me saying to my partner, you're cold, you don't understand. If you shift that around and it's like, and use I instead of you, hmm. that changes everything. I'm cold. I don't understand. I'm not open. And when we do that, it's actually self-protection. Okay. Say, say more about so, self-protection. So literally the underlying part of that is something around like, If I actually own this, I might feel shame. If I actually own this, I'm going to feel feelings that I don't want to feel. Mm -hmm. If I actually own this, you actually might get to know me. You, if I actually own this, you, you will get to touch my heart, my soul, instead of my intellectual process. Mm -hmm. And that process is, it's literally a self-protective process. Where we oftentimes, not always, because if we have trauma, and let me just throw this in, is is we can actually have pretty solid attachment as infants, and and through our lives, we can experience trauma, and it plays itself out the exact same way as attachment does. Ultimately, trauma work and attachment work are the same thing. Hmm. But what attachment is, is the building of trust. That's Every theory out there that has to do with working with attachment has to do with either building or, and I'll use that same kind of thing around contact, either promoting or inhibiting trust. What builds trust between two beings, doesn't matter which two beings, it can be you and me, it can be my partner and I, it can be my horse and I, it can be the accountant, it can be whomever is what truly builds trust is the process of going through a tough time and coming out. Okay. Mm. And for that to be predictable. Mm. So when we do not feel or do not trust that we can go through a hard time and come out. Okay. What we're going to do is protect ourselves, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, makes perfect sense to me. If I'm around somebody that can that I actually believe will do their best. And this is a really big part of this because this is really where trust comes in because going for the try is what we're really after. Not going for the perfection. we going for the try is always, always, always incredibly vulnerable. And, uh, but that's what we're actually looking for is, is the, uh, the, underlying motivation and attempt to like if I'm working with a horse trying to work towards something what I'm actually doing is I will reward the try and if I reward the try every time if I support the try if I'm in relationship with the try same way for myself when I'm on a horse when I allow myself to reward my own try then we can do almost anything so it's literally being vulnerable enough to try and interestingly enough this comes back to yourself it's do you trust yourself to try Mm -hmm. you trust yourself to stick with yourself even if you try and it doesn't work out
0: makes yeah it makes total sense i mean i i often tell men you know find a partner you can and want to go through conflict with exactly you know, because we we often f- focus in on what do we want her to look like, you know, what sort of qualities are characteristic, funny, yada, yada. But we don't often focus on what type of person do I want to navigate conflict with, which is, you know, it's it's something that if you're looking for a long term relationship, you're inevitably going to have happen. It's not like you're never going to deal with conflict. And so we we benefit from. Finding ourselves in relationships with people that actively want to engage in conflict with us, but to do so in a generative fashion, which is what I hear you saying, that you can that's go through conflict, come out the other side and know that you're okay. It's like, wow, that's, that's something. And it seems like in relationships, breakdown happens because people either never had that, that trust in the first place that they could go through conflict together and come out the other side okay, or at some point it starts to deteriorate
1: you know? Right. And this is where all the attachment stuff comes in. Uh Literally early on, when we're hungry, when we want food, when we want touch, and when we want movement, which are the three things that we need in infancy. And we're really struggling. We're hungry. Like a two-month-old cannot jump out of their little cradle and hop to the fridge and warm up a little milk. And they just can't do that. They're literally going through a hard time. When we pick them up, when we rock them and we soothe them and we feed them and they literally are going from being very upset and you can just feel it in their body where they're going, (laughs) when we do that with infants, they're learning that they can go through a hard time, come out. Okay. Mm. And, uh, years ago I did a study. Infants do that. Infants up through about early toddlerhood do that 10 to 12 times an hour. And we don't have to be perfect at it. We just have to have to try. But when we learn that and that trust is in our bones, that we can do that, then we can stay with that. Hmm. And that goes back to the objectification thing. Like, it's like, yeah, here's this early on in relationships. Yeah, here's this woman that's beautiful. Yeah, sex with her is great. You know, when I walk down the street with her, everyone's looking at her and I'm going, (laughs) she's with me. You know, that routine, it's like, we're not answering that question. Can we be vulnerable? Can we be open? Am I willing to let her see my heart and her soul, mm-hmm. my soul? And is she willing to let me see her heart and soul? And is she willing to get in conflict and come out okay with me? And and am I willing to be in conflict and work toward it coming out okay? Which mm-hmm. actually means you have to stay in it. And you have to do it from a place of not objectifying her or yourself in the middle of the conflict.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there's a there's a number of things in there that I wanted to touch on. I mean, in, when you were talking about you know, in infancy, I I got obviously a, a picture of my son who's 11 months old now, which is wild to think about. You know, <laughs> he's yeah, exactly. a year yeah,
1: old. yeah. Wasn't that just yesterday that he was born? I think something like that, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's just nuts. But you know, he's he's such an active little guy, and he's you know, starting to motor around, or he crawls, he holds on to things, and walks around them like tables and stuff like that. And it is very interesting to see, you know, we can be feeding him and he'll switch from needing food to needing movement in a heartbeat. All of a sudden, he's yeah. like, okay, I got to move. Like, get me out of this chair. And he's pushing the thing and he's kicking and, he, you know, he won't eat and he's, you know, swatting away the spoon. <laughs> I think it's funny because I can see that within myself. You know, I can see that those changes happening within myself, even as an adult, you know, I'll, I'll want to move or, you know, I can trust. Uh, a partner to have a hard conversation or whatever that it is, i can I can see that part of me moving around. but I think what you're saying is that in that space, we learn attachment in our young years, right when we're a, an infant yes. and a toddler, in our caretaker's ability to respond to those needs and those changes between movement, uh, food, and physical touch. And if that's not met, if we consistently don't get met with physical touch or movement or food, then the byproduct of that is what? Like, what what starts to happen for that infant if if those three things aren't
1: met? Great question. As we move through life, this gets more layered and sophisticated. With infants, though, they only have two choices: they either rage or they shut down, mm. and as there isn't another choice, and many times, I mean, just for the listener who's listening to this, think about what happens when you get into conflict. Do you rage? Do you shut down? Or do you go back go back and forth between the two? Because what an infant will try to do is they'll, they'll, they don't know it, but they're actually trying to have a conversation. Do you want me to shut down? Well, that didn't work. Do you want me? What do you, you know? And they're actually looking for an answer. And we, it's our job as a parent to give that answer. It's also our job as, in my view, as a person in a partnership or a marriage to give that answer to. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I don't want you to rage and no, I don't want you to shut down. No, I don't want to do either of those. How can we be in the middle of, how can we find something, you know, door three, yeah. which is actually coming back to that contact and, and. Again, one of the primary ways to do that is to own what's going on. Like I not purely made up, Connor, you just fucking pissed me off. Or I could say, wow, I'm, I'm pissing myself off right now. Mm. I'm making myself, I'm connecting into anger about something. And again, purely made up because it's like, how do I begin to own this? Because when I can own that, that actually gives me a huge amount of power. And um, one of the things that we often protect ourselves from in relationships where we move into an objectifying place, it's because we feel we're afraid of losing our power.
0: So just make sure I'm, I'm getting this right in hearing you is that when basic needs aren't met when we're young, you know, if a parent isn't tending to us, and and this doesn't have to be in our infancy, right? This can be when we're five or 12 or, you know, in in our youth. Yeah. So when those things aren't being met, the end result is that on some level we lose contact with that loved one. Is that roughly accurate? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we act in accordance with that, whether it's shame or anger or frustration or shutdown or hopelessness, or we're the victim to them in some capacity, some narrative, some emotional uh, perspective starts to manifest out of that experience.
1: Yes. And the younger we are, the more, the fewer options we have. What you just described was really good because it's like part of what you're describing is as we get older, we can get more sophisticated. And the answer, when you said, let me clarify this, the answer is absolutely, that's exactly what you did very well. If we can allow ourselves to think about all of those things, whether it's frustration or confusion or spacing out or whatever those might be, if we can start thinking about those things from a place of being protective, that those are self-protections, then um, we can begin to move from those places. Early today, we were talking about modalities some people from a gestalt perspective actually will still use the word resistance and mm-hmm. there's a lot of and a lot of modalities there's a lo- that word resistance is big in my world i don't use that word i don't i mean one if i say oh my client's resistant most of the time what that means is i don't know what to do and and i've taught many 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 therapists I've, over the years i've probably Three or 4,000 therapists have gone through programs that I've been part of or founded. And the word resistance comes up and it's like, what I teach about is if you're saying your client is resistant, most of the time what that means is you don't know what to do and you're blaming it on your client. Mm -hmm. I also shift that to if a client is struggling with something, instead of using the word resistance, I use the word protection. It's like, what is my client doing? To protect themselves and what are they protecting themselves from mm. and as soon as i shift that people go so it's literally and this is the weak part it's literally if this is the therapist and the client it's like you're resistant you're resistant that's different if we can go what what is it that you're protecting yourself from we're literally coming over next to them and then the next question is well let me help you protect yourself for how can mm-hmm. i help you do that Mm -hmm. And as soon as that happens, everything melts. That makes sense. And in that process, what have we just done? We've just gone through a tough time and come out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whether it be with your little guy who wants to get out of the chair. And I, gosh, I know that feeling so well. I'll be in the middle. I've got to friggin' move. And it's the same thing if I'm with my partner, you know, I mean, it's like when something happens, it's like, you know, sweetie, what are you protecting yourself from? Or can I help you protect yourself from, or if she does that to me, I mean, and we don't make much contact. Nobody makes much contact when they're protecting themselves.
0: So the protection mechanism is a result of learned, like not learned helplessness, I would say, but it, it's almost like learned that we learn that our needs aren't going to be prioritized, whether that's true or not, right? Because I think that the patterns that you're talking about that show up, especially in intimate relationships, where we begin to sabotage or we shut down or we rage or you know we we criticize, those patterns have come on some level because we we didn't have our needs met, we we weren't attached to and taken care of and tended to when we needed to, and so we began to create these protection mechanisms. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, wholly accurate. The main purpose of our system, from a good thought perspective, I would say system, some people will say brain, but our brain's part of our body, is to survive. Mm. That's that's our main purpose. And the protective process is one of trying to survive. When we're tiny, and I mean, you're a little guy, I. I think it's great. He's up and around and moving and stuff, but he still wouldn't survive without his parents. He wouldn't, mm-hmm. that would not happen. And so our main is of our system is to survive. When we're tiny, not being fed is, even for a couple of hours, feels like life or death. Mm-hmm. If we can really put ourselves in that that position of, of that little person. So when we're in relationship and we get to that place, it feels like it's a survival process to Mm. us. Most likely is not, you know, people will live through arguments, but that's not what it feels like. That's not the inner experience that somebody is having. The inner experience that someone is having oftentimes is, I got to get out of here and make it through this. I won't, I'm overwhelmed. Like all of those kinds of experiences. And it's like, and so, therefore, we, we become protective. And if two people in a relationship are protective <laughs> of the, each other, of themselves, we're in trouble. If two people in a relationship are protective and going, what, what do you need to be protected? What do you need to be protected? It's like, then it it actually is incredibly smooth.
0: Are there certain mechanisms that seem to play themselves out in the men that you've worked with when it comes to protection? Like, are there commonalities of what you've seen men trying to protect themselves from? I feel like this is where things like abandonment and neglect come in. You know, I'm, I'm trying to ward off not being abandoned again or neglected again or, or shamed or criticized. Um, I don't know if I'm on the right track, but I was sort of curious if you've seen patterns of what men are trying to protect themselves from and then and then how we you know how how we can address that.
1: You're correct. And let me speak to a couple of things here. What I've seen with men is that men more often feel betrayed than they feel abandoned. Because to be abandoned you have to have been in relationship first.
0: Mm.
1: You have to have a relationship that you're being abandoned from. So if we've isolated and separated, that's not there. Women tend to feel more abandoned than betrayed. Now, again, those are general statements. Please don't.
0: I'd say they're fairly accurate. I, I would say that based on my experience as well, while, while limited in comparison to yours, is quite the
1: same, is that women do feel more abandoned and men do feel more betrayed. Right. And so so the patterns from betrayal are two things. One, isolation, and then we actually tend to betray ourselves. Um, The behavioral patterns that come out of it are, again, go back to either shutting down or raging. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll rage either toward another or to ourselves, or we will just shut down and and we leave. And in, again, the world of therapy, it's called dissociation. But it's like where we actually betray ourselves. Hmm. The... The betrayal of ourselves oftentimes comes through self-sabotage. And the biggest place where I think men self-sabotage is when they feel betrayed by somebody, they almost never go to somebody else and say, what do you help me out?
0: Yeah, it almost seems like, I mean, you, you had talked about prior to this, you had talked about the sort of relationship with our intellect, you know, like with our, with our thought process. And I think that a lot of the times in relationships is that a partner will be telling a man, I, I, I want to feel more of you. I want to know more of you. I want to feel closer to you. I don't feel close to you. You know, like a, a man will hear those types of things. And it's, and it's often that he doesn't feel close with himself in some degree and his partner's picking up on it. Right. That he's right. I, and I, I think that in some ways this is a representation of being of us over indexing our rational mind. And not actually going any deeper than that, you know, not feeling super connected with our heart, as you said, being in relationship with these deeper parts of ourself. So if a man has felt betrayed and is sort of over, over identifies as his thought process, what is he, what does he begin to do? Like, how does he start to make Um, contact and build relationship (laughs) with the depths of, of his own being?
1: Well, interestingly enough, there is this whole process of identifying with our our brains and our intellect and our ability to figure something out is one of the most protective things we can do. Mm, So let's start with that piece. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) I can figure this out and I can say the right three things and I can build a bridge and I can fix my car and all of those kinds of things. Every man and every person, right now we're talking about men, every person that does that has stopped breathing. And they've stopped allowing themselves to, to experience and express. So let me talk about that a little bit. If we try and hold our breath, and I've actually seen people do this, mostly teenage boys, who can hold their breath long enough until they pass on.
0: My little brother did that when he was young. Daddy. Yeah. He? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go on. There you go.
1: Yeah. And as soon as we pass out, what happens is we start breathing. Mm-hmm. So the idea of breath is something that we're going to do whether or not we think about it. So the only issue with breath is whether or not we're going to breathe. It's going to be how we breathe. There's a huge distinction. Hmm. We can breathe enough to stay alive and to stay conscious, but that's really different than than a breath that actually moves down through our bodies. Hmm. And many people you can watch only breathe like up in here. And it's sort of like, and I know that you've done some breath work. If you actually do that, what happens? Oh, you start to hyperventilate, you're dizzy, you feel anxious. Right, right, right. The same thing happens also with expression of feeling is we don't have control over the fact that we will express Because any energy that moves through our body is an expression of feeling. We only have control over of how we express, just like breathing. We don't have control over the fact that we breathe or not. We only have control over how we breathe. One of the pieces that has happened is that when we cut off here and we're all completely intellectual, is that what we have learned is that we're not supposed to express feelings. And we're not supposed to be in our bodies, except maybe for sex. And we hope we can get there enough to have an erection and have sex. Which, interestingly enough, is a lot of times when men are in their heads, one of the side pieces of that is that they, they struggle with erections and they struggle with holding erections. Because holding mm-hmm. they're not in their body enough to experience it. Two pieces move into that. One is movement, like physical movement. Even a half an hour walk a day will change somebody's life if somebody's actually willing to do that. And the other is really working with breath. And the other is befriending your body. And what I mean by befriending your body is literally like, what do your legs feel like right now? What's your butt feel like sitting in your chair? Or if you're out walking, what's it actually, what is your awareness of breathing? Because it's actually the breath that moves energy from up in this part of our body down into our body. Movement, and let me back up a little bit. The word we as men learn not to express emotions. If you break down the word emotion into E motion, when we have the felt sense of an emotion, it's energy through our body. That's what it is. If we cut off that energy, we will not have emotions. So a lot of the cutoff is the fear of feeling certain emotions. So what we're protecting ourselves isn't the necessarily in the environment or even the the relationship. We're protecting ourselves from feeling certain emotions. So the process is breathing and working on moving energy through our body to the point of being aware of that and beginning to allow ourselves to experience those feelings or experience that energy moving through our body. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the way to do that is through movement. So your little guy who wants to jump out of the high chair is like, follow him. He's got it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little noisemaker too. He knows how to express those, that energy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like that energy, It everything. And that's, goes way back to Gestalt. It's all about moving energy. Interestingly enough, it's also all about, that's exactly what happens with horses. Horses do that all the time. And, um, I cannot tell you how many times I will sit somebody on a horse without even moving, but just sit somebody on one of my horses and within seconds, they're sobbing mm. because it's like, Oh my God. Cause they're being held again. And one of the things that happens with horses, interestingly enough, this is a bit of an aside, but it's a fun piece is that a horse's pelvis is exactly like a human pelvis. Mm-hmm. And when we're in utero and our moms are walking, we're getting rocked by her pelvis movie when we're on a horse and a horse is walking, we're getting rocked the exact same way that we were being rocked in utero. And that's the beginning of, that's the kind of work that I do to help people get back in their body because you can't think about that one.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, I feel like we could, we'll, we'll have to carry on. I mean, oddly enough, this went by rather quickly, Oh, maybe not oddly oddly enough, but certainly feels like it went by rather quickly. And uh, I feel like we were just starting to get into some good stuff. So we'll have to have you back on and go back into this topic of energy and motion and, you know, dealing with our emotions as men, moving some of the energy through the body and, and the work with horses, because I feel like all of that is necessary and and fruitful as well. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. And uh, for everyone that's out there, we'll have the links to Dewey's site and his work uh, and the show notes. Feel free to share this episode, man it forward and share it with somebody that you know is going to enjoy this conversation. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.